0: This is Medieval Death Trip for Monday, December 17th, 2018, Episode 63, Concerning the Moves of the Chess King and Queen. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Having heard some legends of the origins of chess and an explanation of the layout of the board, it's time to talk about the pieces. In this third installment of our Holiday Chess series, we look at the king and queen and how they move in the game as originally described by Jacobus de Chesolis in the 13th century and translated by William Caxton 200 years later. Jacobus's text was incredibly popular and exists in a large number of manuscript copies uh, and in translations into many vernacular languages uh, from throughout the 14th and 15th centuries. However, book four of his text, which is the part that actually concerns itself with the mechanics of chess rather than just the moral estates commentary, was often heavily abridged or even omitted entirely in the copies of the work. This rather suggests that just as the gameplay of chess feels like a bit of an afterthought to the author, it also clearly wasn't a main selling point for the audience either. Of course, that could be because the book wasn't telling them anything they didn't already know about chess. By the 13th century, chess was firmly ensconced as a major feature of aristocratic recreation in castles and manors, courts and cathedrals. Scenes of chess playing are commonplaces in chivalric romances, and in histories, a famous person's skill at chess starts to appear among their cited virtues. Most of our literary and even archaeological evidence uh, for chess in the Middle Ages tends to focus on its place among those of high status, but of course, the game's popularity was much broader than that. We'll come back to the sociological place of chess in an upcoming episode. Uh, For now, though, I want to touch on a different multicultural aspect of chess. One of the remarkable things to note about the game is how amazingly swift and wide its transmission was across cultures. It was kind of a viral sensation. Compared to a lot of other games whose boards and pieces spread around but were adapted into different games as they moved through cultures... Chess stayed remarkably consistent. Names of pieces and what they were perceived to represent may have changed, but the core rules stayed pretty much the same, with only minor variations from place to place. Which is all the more impressive given that compared to many other pre modern board games, chess's rules are rather complex, with all the distinct movements for the different pieces to be learned. Chess is a bit of a counterexample to conventional wisdom. Uh, Normally, things that spread rapidly across cultures do so because they're adaptable and flexible and can be reshaped to different cultural norms and expectations. But the history of chess is marked by its surprising inflexibility and the stasis of its rules, except for one big change that splits the chess timeline into two clear eras. The game being described by Jacobus and Caxton comes from the other side of that divide than the one we're on, and some of the key differences between old chess and modern chess are front and center in our excerpt for today. So, Europe got its version of chess from the Muslim world, and they stuck to mainly the same rules. You might just call it pan-Mediterranean chess. This game is absolutely still recognizable as chess, but it does have a few differences from the modern game. One, the bishop had a different move. It could only move two spaces diagonally, jumping over anything in the way, like the knight does. Pawns couldn't move two spaces on their first move, that came later, and the queen was quite different. Far from the powerhouse she is now, she could only move one space diagonally, like a much weaker version of the bishop. Now, by the 13th century, when Jacobus was writing, you start to see some experimentation with how the pieces move, especially in allowing special leaps for the king and queen on their first moves. Our text today spends rather a lot of words trying to explain and rationalize these special first moves, uh, and it will probably be confusing nonsense to most modern chess players. Uh, But it is basically an extended range of moves in the same vein as castling. After the text, we'll look at how we got from this form of the game to chess as it is now. And before we get into our excerpt, uh, first a few textual notes. One, Caxton talks about the pieces drafts here, which means their moves. And I just wanted to say, as someone who has found himself there before, if you say draughts instead of drafts, you need not feel ashamed. You're just being medieval. The word comes from the verb draw, a draft beer is a beer you are drawing from the tap. In a military or sports draft, you are being drawn by lots or selected. In moving a game piece, you are drawing it across the board. The Middle English draught had that guttural sound which winds up being spelled with a GH, and in later pronunciation, for whatever reason, draft went the way of laugh rather than caught. And, of course, in America, you start to find the spelling adapted to D-R-A-F-T instead of the British D-R-A-U-G-H-T spelling. But you will find medieval and early modern rhymes um, where the word is rhymed with ought sounds rather than aft. Anyway, that's my excuse if I ever say draught in a place where it's supposed to be draft, um, and it's available for you to use as well. An obsolete word that recurs many times in this selection is simblable. On the page, it's probably a little easier to parse. You can see that it's the same stem as resemble, and it means similar or in resemblance of. It also pops up here as an adverb, "simbly" or similarly, in like manner. We also run into an obsolete meaning of siege. We're talking about a battle game, so siege seems to fit into that context but here, Caxton uses siege in the sense that the word actually still has in modern French, which is a seat. And the military sense of siege comes from that. It's when the army is sitting in a place. So in this text, uh, this is Caxton's word for the positions that the pieces are placed in. So when he says that the alphin and rook on the right side are in semblable siege to the ones on the left, he means they're put in similar or corresponding spaces. And a reminder, the Alfin is the bishop, as we learned earlier, and all the pawns have been individually assigned vocations from among the common people, uh, which is used to identify their spaces. Um, So what we might call the queen's bishop's pawn would just be the taverner in Caxton's notation. And here we go, continuing book four of The Game and Play of the Chess. The second chapter of the fourth tractate treateth of the draft of the king and how he moveth in the checker. We ought to know that in this world the king's seigniory and reign each in his realm, and in this play we ought to know by the nature of it how the king moveth him and issueth out of his place. For ye shall understand that he is set in the fourth quadrant or point of the eschequer, and when he is black he standeth in the white and the knight on his right side in white, and the alfin and rook in black. And on the left side, the four hold in the places opposite. And the reason may be such, for because that the knights bend the glory and crown of the king, they ensue in simblable residence that they do when they be set semblably on the right side of the king and on the left side of the queen. And forasmuch as the rook on the right side is vicar of the king, he accompanieth the queen in symbolable siege that the alfin doth, Which is judge of the king, and in likewise the left rook and the left alfin accompany the king in semblable siege. In such wise as they been set about the king in both sides with the queen in a manner of a crown, that they may surely keep the realm that reluseth or glows and shineth in the king and in the queen. In such wise as they may confirm and defend him in their sieges and in their places, and the more hastily run upon his enemies. And forasmuch as the judge, the knight, and the vicar keep and garnish the king on that one side, they that been set on the other side keep the queen, and thus keep they all the strength and firmity of the realm, and symbolably otherwhile for to ordain the things that appertain to the council, and to busying of the realm. For if each man should intend to his own proper things, and that they defended not nor took heed unto the things that appertain to the king, to the common, and to the realm, The realm should anon be divided in parties, and thus might the judge reign, and the name of all the dignity royal should be lost. And truly, forasmuch as the king holdeth the dignity above all other and the seignory royal, therefore it appertaineth not that he absent him long, nor withdraw him far by space of time from the master siege of his realm. For when he will move him, he ought not to pass at the first draft the number of three points, and when he beginneth thus to move from his white point he hath the nature of the rooks on the right side and to the left for to go black or white and also he may go unto the white point where the guards of the city been set and in this point he hath the nature of a knight and these two manners of moving appertaineth otherwhile to the queen and for as much as the king and the queen that be conjoined together by marriage been one thing as one flesh and blood Therefore may the king move on the left side of his proper point also, well as he were set in the place of the queen, which is black, and when he goeth right in the manner of the rook only. And it happened that the adversary be not covered in any point in the second line, the king may not pass from his black point unto the third line. And thus he sortiseth, or acquires, the nature of the rook on the right side and left side unto the place of the knights, and for to go right to for into the white point to for the merchant. And the king also sorteth the nature of the knights, when he goeth on the right side in two manners. For he may put him in the void space to for the physician, and in the black space to for the taverner. And on the other side he goeth into other two places in likewise, that is, to for the smith and the notary. And thus, as in going out first into four points, he sorteth the nature of the knights." And also, the king sortiseth the nature of the alphans at his first issue into two places. And he may go on both sides unto the white place void, that one to for the smith on that one side, and that other to for the taverner on that other side. All these issues hath the king out of his proper place of his own virtue when he beginneth to move. But when he is once moved from his proper place, he may not move but into one space or point, and so from one to another. And then he sortiseth the nature of the common people, and thus by good right he hath in himself the nature of all. For all the virtue that is in the members cometh of the head, and all moving of the body, the beginning and life cometh from the heart. And all the dignity that the subjects have by execution and continual appearance of their moving and issue, the king detaineth it, and is attributed to him the victory of the knights, the prudence of the judges, the authority of the vicars or legates, the continence of the queen, the concord and unity of the people. So been all these things ascribed unto the honor and worship of the king in his issue when he moveth first. The third line to for the people he never exceedeth, for in the third number all manner of states begin to move. For the trinary number containeth three parties which make a perfect number. For a trinary number hath one, two, three, which joined together maketh six, which is the first perfect number, and signifieth in this place six persons named that constitute the perfection of a realm, that is to wit the king, the queen, judges, knights, vicars or legates, and the common people. And therefore the king ought to begin in his first moving of three points, that he show perfection of life as well in himself as in other. After the king beginneth to move, he may lead with him the queen, after the manner of his issue. For why the queen followeth unto two angular places in the manner of the alfin, and to a place indirect by the manner of a rook, into the black point to for the physician, herein is signified that the women may not move, neither make vows of pilgrimage nor of voyage, without the will of their husbands. For if a woman had avowed anything, her husband living and again saying, or gainsaying, She may not yield nor accomplish her vow. If the husband will go anywhere, he may well go without her. And if so be that the husband will have her with him, she is bounden to follow him. And by reason, for a man is the head of a woman, and not e converso, or conversely. For as to such things as belong to patrimony, they been like. But the man hath power over her body, and so hath not the woman over his. And therefore, when the king beginneth to move, the queen may follow, and not alway when she moveth, is it no need the king to move. For why, four of the first lines be within the limits and space of the realm, and unto the third point the king may move at his first moving out of his proper place. And when he passeth the fourth line, he goeth out of his realm. And if he pass one point, let him beware. For the person of a king is accounted more than a thousand of other. For when he exposeth him unto the perils of battle, it is necessary that he go atemperately and slyly. For if he be taken, or dead, or else enclosed and shut up, all the strength of all other fail, and all is finished and lost. And therefore he hath need to go and move wisely. And also, therefore, he may not move but one point after his first moving, But wherever that ever he go, forward or backward, or on that one side, or on the other, or else corner-wise, he may never approach his adversary the king nearer than the third point. And therefore the kings in battle ought never to approach one nigh that other. And also, when the king hath gone so far that all his men be lost, then he is sole, and that he may not endure long when he is brought to that extremity. And also he ought to take heed that he stand not so that a knight or another saith check rook, then the king loseth the rook. That king is not well fortunate that loseth him to whom his authority delegate appertaineth. Who may do the needs of the realm if he be privied, or captured, taken, or dead, that was provisor of all the realm? He shall bear a sack on his head that is shut in a city, and all they that were therein been taken in captivity and shut up. The third chapter of the fourth book, of the queen and how she issueth out of her place. When the queen which is accompanied unto the king beginneth to move from her proper place, she goeth in a double manner, that is to wit as an alfin. When she is black, she may go on the right side and come into the point to fore the notary, and on the left side in the black point and come to fore the guards of the city. And it is to wit that she sortiseth in herself the nature in three manners, first on the right side to for the alphin; secondly on the left side where the knight is, and thirdly indirectly unto the black point to for the physician. And the reason why is forasmuch as she hath in herself by grace the authority that the rooks have by commission, for she may give and grant many things to her subjects graciously, And thus also ought she to have perfect wisdom, as the alphans have which been judges, as it said above in the chapter of the queen. And she hath not the nature of knights, and it is not fitting, nay, convenable thing for a woman to go to battle, for the fragility and feebleness of her. And therefore holdeth she not the way in her draft as the knight's doon. And when she is moved once out of her place, she may not go but from one point to another, and yet covertly whether it be forward or backward, taking or be taken. And here may be asked why the queen goeth to battle with the king. Certainly it is for the solace of him and ostention of love. And also the people desire to have succession of the king, and therefore the Tartars have their wives into the field with them. Yet it is not good that men have their wives with them, but that they should abide in the cities or within their own terms. For when they've been out of their cities and limits, they've been not sure, but holden suspect. They should be shamefast, and hold all men suspect. For Dinah, Jacob's daughter, as long as she was in the house of her brethren, she kept her virginity. But as soon as she went forth to see the strange regions, Anon, she was corrupt and defouled of the son of Sichem. Seneca saith that the women that have evil visages been gladly not chaste, but their courage, or disposition, desireth gladly the company of men. And Salinus saith that no beast's females desire to be touched of their males when they have conceived, except women, which ought to be a beast reasonable, and in this case she loseth her reason. And Sidrac witnesseth the same. And therefore, in the old law, the fathers had diverse wives and Ancelis, or concubines, To the end that when one was with child, they might take another. They ought to have the visage inclined, for to eschew the sight of men, that by the sight they be not moved with incontinence and defame of other. And Ovid saith that there been some that how well that they do eschew the deed, yet have they great joy when they be prayed or solicited. And therefore ought the good women flee the curiosities and places where they might fall in blame and noise of the people. So, there we can see why the queen was not held to be a particularly important piece. That held true until the late 1400s. As the Renaissance is kicking into high gear in the rest of Europe beyond Italy, we find a new variation of chess beginning to spread. This new game featured two major changes to the common rules, uh, bearing in mind that the common rules had their own minor variation from nation to nation. Um, But these big changes involved the movements of the queen and the bishop. Both gave up their ability to leap, but gained the ability to move as far in their allowed directions as they could unimpeded. In other words, the movement rules of modern chess. This only somewhat improved the power of the bishops, but it completely transformed the value of the queen, and consequently the pawn too, since now promoted pawns were exponentially more powerful. It's a nice representation of how empowering women has beneficial trickle-down effects. This form of the game was often called by the name of whatever the local term for the queen piece was, since this game is the queen's game. If you think about it, there was a potential turning point here that didn't happen. Chess, etymologically, takes its name from the king piece, the shah. We could have ditched the king's game, and could have had a new game under the queen's name instead. In any event, in a move that certainly doesn't help the reputation of the patriarchy, the other name of this version of the game that emerges is the Mad Queen game, or just Mad Chess. In Italian, Scacchi alla Rabbiosa. Rabiosa, Rabid Chess. This new rule set also helped speed up the game. In the old game, it took quite a while to move the front-rank pawns out of the way and bring out the more powerful back-rank pieces and get them past the opposing pawns and engaged with your opponent's powerful pieces. Now, though, the queen and bishop can start engaging within the first few moves, and pawns are no longer just cannon fodder, They're worth keeping alive in the hopes of making them queens. In retrospect, it's not too surprising that this mode of play came to be utterly dominant. In less than a century, the new game was what chess was all across Europe. In fact, it might be this very rapidity that prevented a new queenly nomenclature from taking hold. It just became chess so fast that there wasn't a long enough period of the two different forms existing side by side for distinguishing names to be necessary. But you also can't completely dismiss the effects of a prejudicial cultural thumb on the scales of linguistic adoptions, especially in the wake of the kind of sexist discourse about queenly conduct that we just heard. Shifting gears a bit, our text today also highlights some of the difficulty you run into in trying to write down the rules of a board game in a lucid and useful manner, The games are quite visual, and often precisely spatial, and written language is not always well-suited to explaining them. I would halfway wonder if the renaissance in game night gaming we see now isn't partly to do with the availability of YouTube to provide reviews and tutorials and to demystify some of the more complex games. And on that note, let me give a quick shout-out to one of my favorite gaming sites uh, and YouTube channels, Shut Up and Sit Down. I was already well on my way into the hobby when I discovered them, but they've helped me massively broaden my awareness of some of the really good stuff that's out there. Things I never would have even glanced at on the game store shelf, they've shown me to be some of my favorite things, like Galaxy Trucker, which sounds kind of terrible, uh, but is fantastic. Uh, Okay, back to the problem of rules. I've already talked in previous episodes about the difficulty of reconstructing the rules for some of the games that were popular before chess, uh, because the rules were never written down for them. At best, we maybe have a reference to a winning or losing move in a poem, or a few illustrations of a game being played. That can give us a general sense of what type of game it was, but seldom more than that. Occasionally, though, there are breakthroughs. One of these involves the so-called Royal Game of Ur, or the Game of 20 Squares, which is kind of like the coelacanth of board games. The Royal Game of Ur gets its name from the fact that boards for it were discovered by archaeologists in the 1920s during an excavation of a royal cemetery at the site of the ancient city of Ur in modern Iraq. Since then, more boards have been found throughout the Middle East, uh, but the original name has stuck. We now know that this game was quite popular and had a lifespan from around the 3rd millennium BCE up into late antiquity. But, of course, when it was rediscovered in the 20th century, we didn't know how to play it. We had a board and some pieces and some tetrahedral dice and occasionally other kinds of number-generating implements. The design of the board shows some complexity in the rules, um, but it's stuff that you can't intuit how it would work. The board has different designs on specific squares, including rosettes that occur uh, consistently across different artifacts. They must mean something, but what? There were a few surviving traditions of Descendant games, uh, as it were, but even these provided limited guidance. One thing that was recognized is the connection of the game with Divination. In many cultures, the implements of divination uh, become elements of gaming, like knuckle bones thrown as dice. And the board of the game of Ur is connected to divination. The shape of the board, at least in its most common early form—there are variations that emerge later—the um, shape is odd. You have a kind of one 3 by 4 grid that's connected by a little neck of two single squares to another rectangle— that's slightly smaller, three by two. You end up with a shape that looks kind of like a stylized shovel. One of the challenges in reconstructing the game is figuring out how the pieces are meant to move around this board because of its odd configuration. But another group of artifacts provide a very strong case for where this shape comes from. These are clay models of sheep's livers. In ancient Mesopotamia, One particularly popular form of augury was reading the signs on the liver of a sacrificed sheep. So these clay models show the two lobes of the liver, a larger and a smaller, and they're often compartmentalized into little cells, and each of those cells had its own assigned meaning. So presumably if there was a spot or other anomaly in that area of the sacrificial liver, that revealed something about the person's future. Anyway, These cells on the model, connected by a little bridge in the middle, look strikingly similar to the 20 squares of the Game of Ur. As if that wasn't suggestive enough, there's one clay tablet that actually has the conventional liver-interpreting symbols on one side, and a game board for the Game of Ur on the other. Clay artifacts also provided the solution to the riddle of the rules of the Royal Game of Ur, A curator at the British Museum, Irving Finkel, who also edited the big book of essays on ancient board games that I've relied on for much of my scholarship uh, post-H.J.R. Murray uh, in this series. Um, In the 1980s, Finkel came across a clay tablet in the British Museum's collection that had been excavated from Babylon a hundred years earlier, and had been described by the early archaeologists as containing just astrological or divination text in cuneiform. And it hadn't received much attention. Finkel did his own translation of this tablet and realized that, in addition to some apparently fortune telling texts, it also contained a description of the rules for a game, rules that matched up with the features of the board for the Royal Game of Ur. He then also found a second tablet with a similar text uh, that had been in a private collection and was fortuitously photographed shortly before World War I and then was destroyed in the war, Uh, but the photograph survived and preserved its text. Using these two texts and a bit of trial-and-error playtesting, Finkel reconstructed a very compelling version of the game. It's a race game, in a similar vein to backgammon, but where the different spaces have distinctly different effects on the pieces that land on them, and can lead to some rather complicated strategies. But before we roll our eyes at the Victorian scholars who blundered so badly in miscataloguing these clay tablets, um, I thought I'd share with you what these rules are like. If Caxton's text was a little obscure, uh, you ain't seen nothing yet. On the British Museum tablet, one side has a text contained in a diagram of 12 rectangles, each divided up into a central lozenge surrounded by six triangles. Each lozenge is inscribed with the sign of the zodiac, which indicates the order in which these rectangles should be read, and then the reading of the signs in the six triangles proceeds clockwise around the lozenge. If that sounds like some kind of strange abstract poetry, um, well, this is the more obviously fortune-telling text. Uh, reading these little ringed verses yields the following literal translation. 1. 1. Pegasus, one who sits in a tavern. Two, Ares, a beer vat will turn away. Three, Pleiades or Taurus, I will pour out the dregs for you. Four, Gemini, you will find a friend. Five, Cancer, you will stand in exalted places. Six, Leo, you will be powerful like a lion. Seven, Virgo, you will go up the path. Eight, Libra, like one who weighs up silver. Nine, Scorpius, you will draw fine beer. Ten, Sagittarius, you will cross the ditch. Eleven, Capricornus, like one who owns a herd. Twelve, Aquarius, you will cut meat. This sounds like it could be straightforward divination magic, like things you might write under the folds of one of those little origami fortune-telling toys uh, we used to make in grade school. Um, at least some of them, you know, you will be powerful like a lion, you will find a friend. Um, those work as fortune-telling prophecies. You will cross a ditch, you know, omen of travel, but you will cut meat. One who sits in a tavern, I will pour out the drugs for you. There's also mysterious text in here as well. A similar Zodiac-based text is on the photographed tablet, and it comes with a colophon that specifies that this text concerns a game called Pack of Dogs. And then to clinch it, the other side of the surviving British Museum tablet has the text of rules in more straightforward lines rather than ringed lozenges. And I'll just give you a taste of these rules, Uh, jumping into the middle, Lines 9 through 19, to be exact. Uh, One quick terminology note, astragals are knuckle bones, uh, usually of sheep, rolled as dice. All right, so here's a bit of the rules for the Royal Game of Ur. If the astragals score two, the swallow sits at the head of a rosette. Should it then land on a rosette, a woman will love those who linger in a tavern. Regarding their pack, well-being falls to them. If it does not land on a rosette, a woman will reject their pack. As a group, well-being will not fall to them. If the astragals score five, the storm bird sits at the fifth house. Should it then land on a rosette, there will be enough food for the pack. If it does not land on a rosette, starvation for the pack. So, I think we have to forgive the old archaeologists for thinking this might still just be an obscure fortune-telling text. Uh, Not to mention that in the 1880s, the boards for the game hadn't yet been rediscovered to compare this text to. And what we seem to be seeing in this text is a bit of a transformation of a system that may well have been rooted in divination using a board marked up with spaces indicating good or bad outcomes, uh, and which is being reworked in terms of a game in which the players place wagers on the moves. Finkel paints a portrait of Mesopotamian merchants or soldiers in a tavern betting each other for who's going to buy the next round of beer or who's going to, well, buy the next round of women, as it were. The language of good fortune will come to you becomes the language of you are the winner of the stakes. Anyway, you can play the reconstructed game of Ur, uh, sans gambling, Uh, on any number of available apps and as a flash game on websites. Finkel has his rule reconstruction. Uh, There are still competing or alternative rule sets out there. Uh, I happen to quite like one which is a little bit different from Finkel's game, but hits the same core beats. Uh, This is an Android app called Forgotten Game of Ur by Alexey Garbunzenko. And I think it's a really great game. Uh, Of course, I also really like Backgammon. Um, But whereas Hnafetafl left me kind of baffled and frustrated, I love playing the game of Ur. Um, And it is also a cool bit of ancient graphic design. Uh, I encourage you to check it out. My modern game recommendation this episode is also on the theme of interpreting mysterious and opaque messages. This is a game called Mysterium. In Mysterium, the players are simulating a seance, with one player being the ghost of a murder victim... The object of the game is to figure out who murdered the ghost, where, and with what weapon, which might sound a little familiar. But instead of running around a board looking at clue cards, the other players in Mysterium receive dream visions from the ghost in the form of cards with very surreal imagery on them. For example, you're trying to identify the murderer out of an array of different suspects pictured on cards set out on the table. The ghost hands you a card to direct you to one of these suspects. So, your card is a picture of a tree, so it's probably the gardener, right? Uh, Oh, except the tree is sprouting cupcakes, so maybe that's actually pointing to the cook. Then again, there is that mouse driving a little car down in the lower right corner of the card, so maybe I'm supposed to be picking the chauffeur. Everyone makes their guess and it's revealed by the ghost which guesses were correct or not, and if you got it wrong, the ghost gives you another card to try to narrow it down further. There's a bit more to it than that, but that's the core gameplay mechanic, trying to interpret what the ghost is trying to say to you through these dream imagery cards. Oh, and the ghost has a limited hand of cards to work with, Uh, so the ghost also has a fun challenge of trying to make the best of a sometimes very obscure set of options. It's a whole lot of fun, and it really does turn into um, something like the cooperative version of a bluffing-based party game, because so much of it comes down to extrapolating from what you know about the other player's psychology. Is Mom as the Ghost going to give me a card because the color scheme of its scene is very similar to one of the crime scene rooms? If I'm the ghost, do I know that Dad is never going to pick up on a color scheme clue and get completely sidetracked by some little detail in the corner, so I have to be very careful about what cards I give him? My family's had some exasperated but hilarious arguments at the end of a game, interrogating why the ghost thought a particular card matched with a suspect or a weapon or a room. Uh, And as the ghost, you have to live that out in real time, hearing your friends or family make the most bizarre and wrong interpretations of the cards you've just given them, and having to remain silent and poker-faced because the ghost is not allowed to communicate during the rounds except through cards. I highly recommend this game. Uh, It's a high concept, but the core premise is familiar enough, you know, Clue or Cluedo, uh, that novice players can find their footing quite easily. So, Mysterium, check it out. Um, It's also a good Christmas game, I think, in the spirit of traditional Christmas ghost stories. We still have a bit more in this chess series to come. As always, you can interact with us on Twitter, at MDT podcast, or send me an email to patrick at Trip.com, And at MedievalDeathTrip.com, you can find out more information about this and every episode, including references for Sources Consulted. Our Patreon supporters are getting a little bonus set of audio Christmas gifts this series, uh, with a couple of appendix episodes out just for patrons, uh, one for each of the last two episodes. And anyone who wants to become a patron... You'll get access to all of the Patreon content that's been created so far, uh, including our audiobook of Jordanus' Wonders of the East. Until next time, when we look at the remaining back rank pieces, keep your Mad Queen protected, and thanks for listening.